0: it's not the afternoon so we can say good morning without fear of reprisal having to put money in the jar um, it's good to be here just I want to echo uh, Lem's thanks to Janice she's our contact here Socrates has been just fantastic they let us come yesterday for hours and set stuff up and they've been bent over backwards let us put a permanent sign out here by Weddington Road and so yeah just great thanks to Beth- our Socrates it's great did I say Bethany I think I did thank you socrates who is not bethany thanks to everybody who came yesterday we're here for a couple hours getting things set up so thank you for being here and pitching in Um, there will be kinks uh, things we're working out over the next couple of weeks so just bear with us as we try to smooth those things out as as is always the case Um, but your feedback is welcome so we need to hear from you about seating arrangements and the the softness of this of the cushions that we provided thank you linda Um, But yeah, just feedback on anything, everything uh, is welcome so you can find us and let us know how how it's going for you as we make the transition over the next couple of weeks. Uh, Let's pray and then we'll jump into John chapter 20. Father, we're grateful to you for your grace to us. It's new uh, every morning. We pray that this morning as we wake up, as we worship, tonight as we go to bed, that we will be uh, recognizing, admiring, giving you praise for the great things that you do. And I pray, especially today, as we look into John chapter 20, that you would give us peace, not just peace for ourselves, but peace for the world, and that through us that you might be made known tangibly to those that we are with and those you have called us to love. So I pray now that you would do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, open our mind and our hearts uh, to hear and receive your word through Christ. And we pray it in your name. Amen. So I want to start by just asking you to consider the world as we find it right now. There's rising anxiety and depression. COVID-19 still exists. Political polarization, political violence, even war in Ukraine, rapid inflation, unstable fuel prices, contested elections here and all over the world, culture-wide crisis of gender and sexuality, banned books, rampant conspiracy theories, the breakdown of long-standing social norms, January 6th, insider trading in Congress, civilian militias, FBI raids on former presidents, race-related riots, QAnon, natural disasters. It's a great time to be a Christian. It's a great time to be a Christian. Maybe the best time to be a Christian. Because in a world wracked with anxiety, it's the Christian who possesses what the world does not. Right? It's a Christian who offers what the world is looking for but can't find a Christian for whom the anxieties and the fears and the chaos of the world is unnecessary. It's the Christian alone who can truly be non-anxious, who can truly have peace. And that presents us with a significant opportunity for mission in the modern world, in our world. I want to wrap up this three weeks talking about being a non-anxious church by talking about mission. And if you think that sounds odd to talk about mission in a sermon series on anxiety i think that's partially because in the american church there's a huge divide between what we are called to be and what we're called to do we know what we're supposed to do right we're supposed to serve we're supposed to preach the gospel we're supposed to make disciples we're supposed to go on short-term mission trips all this stuff we're supposed to do but what we're supposed to be be loving joyful peaceful patient kind you've heard the fruits of the spirit right the things we're supposed to be are maybe seen as a bonus or for the super spiritual people or just for like my personal holiness and to do that though is to put the cart before the horse or I might even say like to leave the horse in the barn and try to push the cart up the hill yourself because it's possible I was reminded this week at the conference I was at it's possible to do a lot of stuff that looks like mission without becoming like Jesus But it is impossible to become like Jesus without doing a bunch of stuff that looks like mission. Does that make sense? It's possible to do a ton of stuff, to do things, but not ever become like Jesus. It's not possible to become like Jesus without ending up doing stuff that is missional and focused on other people. So today, in this vision of being non-anxious, of being peaceful and calm, of being unafraid, unworried, unhurried, unhurried, I want you to see this is not about self-improvement for you. It's not about ultimately self-improvement for our church or some kind of quality of life improvements, although that will hopefully come. Becoming like Jesus does improve the self. What I want you to see is that this idea, this vision of being a non-anxious church is deeply and critically missional, meaning that there's this purpose for impacting the world for the kingdom of God, that there's this very compelling vision of mission in our In our world, that Christians are not people that just receive peace from Jesus. We're not just people that practice peace, but we're people that, as we just experienced, pass peace to others. So I want you to show you first today how this works in John, and then why this this vision is uniquely suited for our place, our time here in 21st century Charlotte. And then I wanted to talk at the end briefly about some practical ways that we can think about that. So John chapter 20, verses 19 to 23, this is John's version of the Great Commission, right? When you think of the Great Commission, I'm thinking, that, I'm guessing you probably think of Matthew 28, right? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. I think that's probably what you think of. And evangelical Christians of all sorts will, will quote this verse, Matthew 28, as the reason for doing any kind of mission, But this is not the only place where Jesus makes a commission in Matthew 28. There's one in Luke 24. There's one in Acts chapter 7. That's my favorite version of it, I think. It says, but you will receive power. This is Jesus talking in Acts 1. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And one of the reasons I think Matthew's version of the Great Commission is so popular for us Is that this idea of making disciples fits really well in our sort of commercial industrial individualistic society because disciple making disciples becomes this kind of product that we can market to individuals discipleship becomes this thing that we try to get individuals to do and and it has defined and measurable success right everybody likes your company I'm sure your boss likes your smart goals you know smart goals like measurable achievable These things where you can actually say, I'm going to do this, and then you can achieve it. Well, making disciples, we've kind of made it so that we can actually accomplish that. And I I can't tell you how many conversations I've been in where we're talking about uh, counting things and measuring things, measuring the success of being a disciple, measure our disciple-making success. I heard of a church that actually was going to have a counter inside of their lobby so that when you came in, you would push a little button if you had any gospel conversations during the week, and they would record the number of gospel conversations that were happening. That's measurable, achievable, attainable success. There's churches all over the country that have baptism quotas for their pastors, conversion quotas, things that you can measure, right? Measurable, achievable. It fits really well in our modern world. By the way, that's that's an incredibly anxious way to do mission. (laughs) Matthew's formulation also not matthew's fault just his formulation also doesn't seem to require becoming like jesus it does it's saying talking about teaching others to obey it's like well i don't have to obey i'm just going to go teach others to obey all that god has commanded this has made matthew's version just popular in our culture but john has this much neglected and i think much needed corrective balancing act to this accomplishment driven model John says this, let's look at the text, John 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, okay, this is Sunday, the day of Jesus' resurrection. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Okay, what happens? They're fearful. Okay, this is not an accident that John calls this particular thing out. Note that this is what we've been talking about anxiety and fear. The disciples are anxious and fearful, and they're in a room locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, that's interesting on its own right, came through the, through the door, through the walls, into the room, and said to them, and what did he say? Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. I just want you to see three things here. Jesus comes with peace. He comes with peace. Peace in contrast to their fear. He says, hey, you're anxious right now? Be non-anxious. That's, that's the, one, the one command here at the beginning. The beginning of his great commission, what does he say? Be non-anxious. Be at peace. And he says it not once, but twice. Or this is the way the Bible emphasizes things, by doubling them up. He says it twice. Again, he said to them, peace. And this is kind of verifying, ratifying everything that we had seen the last two weeks. When he, what, This whole treatise that he gives them where he's saying things like, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And what do they do? They run into a room, lock the door, and are scared. I, I have said these things to you, this whole upper room discourse, uh, 25, 30% of the of the book of Mark, I've, or John, I've said these things to you so that you might have peace. In this world you will have pressure, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And now that Jesus is raised from the dead, he comes in and he says, hey, all that stuff I told you, here it is. Here's the peace that I leave to you. This is the moment of gratification. I experience this all the time with my kids when I tell them, I'm going to get you this gift, I'm going to get you this gift, and they're just like, where is it? in the moment that I give it to them. It's like, here it is. That thing that you said, it's right here. This is what Jesus is doing in this moment. He's giving them the thing he promised. There's a lot of Holy Spirit stuff going on here that we didn't get to look at in any of these texts, but the Holy Spirit intimately connected with this idea of peace. So Jesus comes with peace. He doesn't just come declaring peace to them. Secondly, Jesus comes with his presence. When he had said this, he showed them his hands, and his feet. Tangible, tactile, visible, fleshly, incarnational peace. He's like, hey, I'm going to give you peace, but now I want to show you, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. I'm going to preach peace, I'm also going to bring myself as evidence of that peace. And he's offering himself to them. Peace is offered based on the cross and the resurrection, but given to them via The means of his presence. And I think reading this version of the Great Commission, there's just this difference from what we often think about when we talk about Matthew 28, in that Matthew 28 tends to lead to this functional view of the Great Commission, where there's all this stuff we need to get done. And you read John's version, and it has a much more incarnational version like, be present, be present. That there's this missional urge to bring peace through presence. I think it's kind of maybe easy to see in the context of parenting. There's a lot of things we want to do for our kids, things we want them to accomplish, things we do for them that they don't appreciate. There's a lot of doing in parenting, but you get to the end of the day, you ask a lot of parents, you're like, what do you wish? Do you wish you would have done more stuff for your kids? Like, no, I wish I would have spent more time with my kids. Incarnational parenting versus functional parenting. That's kind of the way I'm thinking about this. Functional mission versus incarnational mission. Because the thing is that doing that doesn't flow from being is irrelevant. It's not real. You can do a bunch of stuff. This was at the beginning. You can do a bunch of stuff, but if it doesn't flow out of the being, what who you are and what you are becoming, then it's not really relevant for the kingdom of God. So Jesus comes with peace and he comes with presence. But then the third thing is Jesus comes to send. Critically, Jesus then says, after he does that, Jesus says to them, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, with peace, with presence, so therefore, even so, I am sending you. You and I, disciples of Jesus, are sent to be peace in the world. We are to bear peace. The peace of Jesus in our bodies, through our presence, into the world. See, the peace of Jesus is not this, like, just purely legal thing. we think about peace with God, we can get into this, like, it's just, your sins are forgiven and therefore he's not mad at you anymore. That's not the peace of Jesus. The peace of Jesus is this real, tangible, tactile feeling in our bodies of peace and composure. The reality of a God who loves us and exists and is remaking the world. It's like there's a, I I had a traffic ticket for speeding and I had a court date that I was supposed to go to and I missed my court date, don't, public service announcement, don't miss your court date. (laughs) And I called the court and I was like, hey, I missed my court date and uh, I need to change, I need to get a new court date. And they're like, oh, you can't do that. You're gonna have to talk to the DA. And I was like, I'm not talking to no DA. So I called a lawyer, and for the next three days until I figured this out, you know what I had in my body? Anxiety, right? And when my legal status was resolved, you know what I felt in my body? Peace. You, you know the difference between these two things. It's this experience. The legal is, is part of it, but that's not the reality. The reality is the feeling of peace, the experience of peace. And this idea of being non-anxious is more effective for the kingdom of God than all the doing that you could do in the whole world. Jesus gives this commission, be people of peace in and for the world. That's what I see in John chapter 20. It's all over the rest of the Bible too, here in John chapter 20. So I want to tell you why this is important for our specific context. Each generation of Christians, each era of the Christian church has been called to contextualize the gospel into the context and the culture in which they live. You see this in the book of Acts. There's like a bunch of sermons in the book of Acts, and every sermon is different. The content, the form, the shape, the emphasis is all different, and every one based on who they are talking to, which culture they are in. Tim Keller in his, his great book called Center Church says this about contextualization. Contextualizing the gospel is giving people the Bible's answers, which they may or may not want to hear, to questions about life that people in their particular time and place are asking, in language and forms they can comprehend, and through appeals and arguments with force they can feel, even if they reject them. So ask. It's giving the Bible's answers to the questions people are asking in language and forms that they understand and in appeals and arguments that they can feel the weight of. And he illustrates it this way. He says, have you ever listened to a boring sermon? That's a dangerous question to ask during a sermon. (laughs) Have you ever listened to a boring sermon? And this is what Tim Keller says. He says, a boring sermon is boring because it fails to bring the truth into the listener's daily life and world. It does not connect the biblical truth to the hope's narratives, fears, and errors of the people in that particular time and place. He says, Whatever the personal and cultural narratives may be, contextualizing shows people how the plot lines of their lives can only find a happy ending in Christ. What is the primary cultural narrative of our world right now? We've been talking about it for three weeks. It's anxiety. We are in an anxious age more than ever before the world is big and it's beyond our control globalism the internet information it's it's very anxiety inducing it feels like the world is spinning out of control revert to my introduction and i could have gone on for like an hour with those things and those are not just like abstract things they're like concrete things that have happened in the last two years in the last two weeks anxiety-inducing world, and people are asking these questions, where can I get peace? They, they say things like, what can make me happy? That's the same question. How can I get this experience of being at peace? Our, the individualism of, of our culture is a quest for personal peace. I want to feel at rest. Right, you know the, the good vibes only shirt? You know, vibes, this is what I'm talking about. Vibes is this thing. That's, that's our culture. Like, I can go to a coffee shop where the coffee is amazing and the service is fantastic, and if the vibes are bad, I'll never go there again because the way it makes me feel matters to me more than other things, and this is the way our culture operates. The language and form of our current culture is one of experience over logic. Feelings over thoughts. They're not as interested, our culture's not as interested in being told. They want to be shown. And what does John 20 say? Jesus showed them the hands and the feet. Show me, show me, show me, show me. This is our post-Christian, post-modern, video image-centric world. Somebody this week at the conference I was at said this, they said, about our culture, they said, you can address the intellectual questions and you might win their mind, but you will not have won their heart win their heart, and you might get their mind. The appeals and arguments that are necessary and needed in our world right now are the appeals and arguments of showing what the gospel does. Bringing peace into the world of anxiety. Because here's the thing. (laughs) Shouting anxiously about the peace of Jesus I haven't made an office reference in a while, so it's time. There's a great episode <laughs> where it's one of the best cold opens of the show. Dwight starts a fire. He's, he wants to prove to the office that, that they're not prepared for fire safety. And so he starts a fire in the office, and then he runs around the office shouting instructions anxiously, wondering why no one listens to him. This is what Christians do. We run around anxiously shouting at people that Jesus can give them peace. And they're like, cool, I don't believe you, show me the non-anxious person, the non-anxious church alone will be heard above the noise of our cultural anxiety. And I'm convinced that this is the bleeding edge of mission in our modern world. There's a lot of ways to do mission, there's a lot of ways to minister, but this This emphasis on non-anxious presence is especially necessary now. If you just think back through hundreds of years with huge broad strokes, right? In the 1600s, colonialism exported Christianity, for better or for worse, all over the world. In 1700s, we created a nation based on Judeo-Christian ethics and set up societies and towns and cities and states that were based around Christianity. In 1800s, there was this giant explosion of mostly white Americans going overseas to bring the gospel, doing mission. This is where you know all these famous names. Hudson Taylor and the many missionaries that went around the world teaching and proclaiming the gospel. 1900s was the era of apologetics and cultural and theological battles. What, what will mission look like in the 2000s? I think it needs to be the era of the non-anxious church. Churches that actually show and be non-anxious. Because Jesus is not surprised or anxious about anything that's happening in the world today. Like I like to picture Jesus sitting at the right hand of God, drinking Cabernet, and commenting on the notes of blackberry and oak. If you don't believe me, read Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? He who sits in heaven laughs while sipping Cabernet. (laughs) There is no existential threat to the Christian church. Trust me, there is no threat to the Christian church. The American church might be dwindling away, but Jesus never promised to keep the American church alive. Rome was ten times more threatening to the church than anything happening right now. And where is Rome? And here we are. The American, the the Christian church exists, Rome, long, long gone. Long after the United States is gone, or we're the republics of California, Texas, and New England, or whatever else happens once we are no longer the United States, you know who will still be here? The Christian church will still be here. Right? (laughs) When COVID and Trump and social media are literal footnotes in high school textbooks in the year 3500, the Christian church will still be here. There's no existential threat, so it's okay. You can can be peaceful. So what does this look like? A couple of thoughts to close. The first is, I have four, four quick things. The first is, Every week in our service, we take a time to rehearse this very thing. Right, this, the passing of the peace is not just a greeting time. It's not a throwaway, right, for all you Baptists out there. It's not, it's not just a throwaway, handshake, and nod time. The passing of the peace, thank God for Anglicans and liturgical traditions, is deeply theological. And I love that we take this seriously here. Right, What's this bodily enactment? This is awkward and annoying. You have to go up to people, you actually have to touch them, you have to say words to their face. Right, this is like you're, you're, in the smallest of ways, training yourself about what it means to be a Christian, the kind of mission that Christians are supposed to do, entering into other people's spheres and passing peace to them. Right, so every week when we do this, the training, we're training ourselves for our missional purpose. And it helps us to think about it like that, to talk about it like that, to realize that when we say those words, I encourage you to do that. You can say hey, you can say hi. I encourage you, say peace of Christ or peace to you because that's what we're doing. We're passing peace. The peace I've received the peace that I practice. I'm here to give it to you. And this isn't about me and my self-actualization. This is about us being the community of Jesus, passing peace. That's the first thing. Just recognize that every time we're here, we practice this second thing is to recognize that passing peace, being a non-anxious presence for others, actually requires you to become like Jesus. You can't do it any other way. There's no shortcut or checkbox you can do to actually pass peace. There's no, back to Judah and his desire to, you know, be an amazing baseball player. He's telling me how many home runs he's going to hit, and he won't, he won't go out and practice. (laughs) If you, if you want to pass peace, if you want to give peace to the world, you actually have to become peaceful. (laughs) This is sort of what we talked about last week. You cannot give to others what you do not have for yourself. And so this allows all of these practices that we talked about, specifically the things that lead to peace and space, Sabbath, simplicity, silence, these are all extremely missional practices. When you do Sabbath, it's not for your own betterment. It's so that you can experience the peace of Christ and allow it to pass to others. If you don't practice Sabbath, you're never going to experience the peace of Christ. You're never going to have it to give to others. All you're doing is going to be potentially irrelevant for the kingdom of God. You cannot present Jesus to people while you're anxious. These are the words. Busy, hurry, frantic, panic, angry, hostile, sour, moody. All of those things, they undermine the message of the gospel. This is why it's so offensive to me To see pictures from January 6th with Jesus save signs. And that makes no sense whatsoever. If we're not being like Jesus, we're not becoming like Jesus, then we're not doing it for Jesus. And so this allows all of the things that we do to practice peace to be missional. To be done not for ourselves but for others and for the world as God has called us and sent us into the world. Two more things. Experienced this, I'm sure I mentioned this two weeks ago. When when you are anxious and a non-anxious person is present or enters the room, things change. You ever been like shaking with rage or sadness or sorrow, and you get a hug from someone who's not shaking at all? And you're like, oh I do this to my kids all the time. Think of those times: the counselor, a friend, the spouse, that non-anxious person. That's the experience that Jesus is calling us to be for other people. So these are things. Where are you present? Who, where do you live, work, and play? Who are the people that God is calling you to be with? Mission can be so abstract out there. Mission, non-anxious mission is with the four or five people that you know. Being peace to them on behalf of God being sent to them? Who is it in your life that God is calling you to be the personal presentation of his peace to this day, this week? It's a few people. I'm not trying to change the world. (laughs) Jesus changed the world. Who are the one, two, three people that God is calling you to be peace into their anxiousness? Who needs you to be that presence? Who needs a steady hand in their life right now? Think about it. Literally, think about it. Write it down a name. Who is the Holy Spirit prompting you to be peace towards? But that also means presence. Who? How do people experience your presence? Do you know? Do you, have you asked someone recently, how do you experience me as a person? When I come in the room, do you feel more at peace? You know, like there's certain people. So certain people walk through that door. Uh, you know this, right? Who is it that if they came in this room, you would tense up? Maybe they're already here. Maybe it's me. (laughs) (laughs) Who is it that if they came in, you know, do you understand the question I'm asking? Who is it that would, now, who are you that person for? That's a question you should not answer. Who are you that person for? How do people experience you? Do people experience you as a person of peace and of non-anxiousness or do people see you coming and Space, who are you with? Literally, who do you spend time with? It's worth considering. Do you make space and time to just be unhurried with other people or are you always going to the next thing? Do you have margin as part of the, these practices and practicing pieces, creating margin and space? One practical way I started a couple years ago, doing this is I try whenever possible to only schedule two hour meeting blocks. I rarely have meetings go two hours, but it allows me to be in every meeting I'm in, fully present to the people that I'm with, not constantly thinking about the next thing. And you're like, but that means I can't do as many meetings in a day. It's like, yes. <laughs> Thank God. This kind of mission doesn't, it takes a long time. This is our unhurried vision. It's not one conversation with someone or two conversations or ten conversations. This is weeks and years and months backwards. Weeks and months and years of sitting with people. This isn't one glass of wine on the back porch. This is like years of hearing people's stories and sitting with them, allowing the peace of Jesus that you have in your body to work into their body. When you talk about the world. When you talk about your kids, when you talk about school, when you talk about politics, when you talk about the news, when you talk about money, do what vibes are you giving off? Do you give off non anxious vibes or do you give off anxious, worries, perturbed, angry, frustrated vibes? That matters, that matters for the kingdom of God. Because he who sits in heaven laughs at the chaos of the world. Do you welcome people? Do people feel welcome and comfortable? People who are at peace, they have brain space to actually focus on other people. When you come into a room, if you're busy and you're focused on yourself, you only think about you and your needs in the room. People who are non-anxious are able to look around and say, who else's needs here can I meet? That's a function of being at peace. That's non-anxious presence. The last thing just briefly is, Jesus, don't take this the wrong way. Jesus never said, blessed are the disciple makers. He never said that. I actually hate the word, the phrase disciple maker and make disciples for another time. It's not in the Bible. Um, disciple maker never pe- appears as a noun in the Bible. And the phrase make disciples never appears either, no matter what you've been told. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. There's so much relational angst in the world. (laughs) Blessed are the peacemakers. This is part of that call, the sentness. To walk into a room and say, peace to you, neighbors, enemies, friends. Peace to you. Blessed are the peacemakers. The non-anxious person, the non-anxious church is going to seek to resolve that. That person that I talked about that walks in the room that tenses you up. The person that you tense up. Being a peacemaker means seeking those people out and resolving that tension. That's part of These past three weeks, I'm trying to cast a vision for a non-anxious church. It starts with receiving the peace of Jesus. Jesus says, my peace I leave with you. Jesus gives us access, unfettered access, to the non-anxious heart of God. And a non-anxious church will be characterized by that from top to bottom. The second thing, then, is that we can't just receive it. We have to actually practice it. It means ordering our lives around this. Jesus says, take heart. This is the how. Orienting our lives as a church, as communities, as individuals and families around the unhurried delight and rest in God. That's what the gospel calls us to do. That's very countercultural. Sabbath silence, slow reading, these things, hosp- actual hospitality. And over the next decade, that's what I hope we become. But lastly, it means we're called to pass the peace into the world. To bring that peace not just here in this room not just in our communities but into the world and the people that god's called us to be with jesus says i have said these things to you so that you might have peace in the world you will have trouble but take heart i have overcome the world it's a great time to be a christian Peace. Thank you for for Christ, his hands and his feet, demonstrating peace, ratifying the peace that he promised to give through the cross and the resurrection. May we now feel and experience it, to be able to rest, rest in you. May we receive the love and joy that you have in yourself and want to give to us. as we offer ourselves to you this week this day that you would that you would bless our offerings and that in them your kingdom would be magnified and made known let us bear witness to your kingdom by how we use our lives we pray this in the name of Christ